strikes every week at Mutiny Radio, brother. work and take a seat at Asiento, a great place to meet friends, have delicious tapas and drinks, and relax with your neighbors. Located at Bryant and 21st Street in the Deep Mission, Kitty Corner Block from Mutiny Radio. Come and get a drink during the comedy festival and enjoy happy hour pricing all night long with your festival ticket. A great neighborhood bar. Come take a seat at Asiento. The Roxy Theater is San Francisco's favorite nonprofit art house cinema, bringing you the best, coolest, weirdest, most thought provoking movies of the past, present, and future. Hands down, there is no better way to get your film fix than at this legendary historic theater. Visit www.roxy.com. That's www.roxie.com today for showtimes and tickets. Everybody should listen to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. With the childlike vision sleeping into view The click and clacking of the high heel shoe Ford and Fitzroy and Madame Jordan Marching with the soldier boy behind He's much older now with head on drinking wine And that smell of sweet perfume comes drifting through Early cool night like Shalimar And outside the making all the stops Kids out in the street collecting bottle tops Gone for cigarettes and matches in the shops Happy taking Madam Joy Oh, that's when you fall Whoa, 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 whoa Yes, this is Labor and Love Radio. You are tuned to Mutiny.fm. Beautiful sort of weekend song here from Van Morrison. Madam George. Sitting on a sofa playing games of chance With your father 
thousand history books you glance into the eyes of Madame George. Let your think you found the bag. You came with her and your knees began to sag. In a corner playing dominoes and drag. The one and only Madame George. the cops and immediately drops everything she got down into the street
Guajira, Guantanamera. The great Nina Simone. and fights and bring a good man down and don't know how to treat him when he takes you on the town they say you ain't behind him and just don't understand and think that you're a woman but acting like a man the whole round world No, it wasn't you that caused this bit of fate All these years you loved him And he knows it's true Cause what you want for your man Is what he's wanting to take out What you gonna do? When you love a 
That was uh, Nina Simone, the latest inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, along with uh, um, great guitar player. Her name escapes me. Uh, they were inducted two weeks ago into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And as one commentator, my brother Charlie remarked, was... Uh, but has Nina Simone uh, accepted Rock and Roll Hall of Fame into her Hall of Fame? Well said. Nina Simone, before that was Guantanamera, the theme song of a whole generation of Pan-American activists when uh, the Chicano movement developed and whites had to really take a look at uh, who these other, who these people were, you know, who were sharing California with them, and uh, just an explosion of cultural exchange all over the Americas—a feeling that you're looking at America uh, this time instead of Europe. And before that was Madame George. Like I said, it seems like it's a really nice weekend song, a beautiful rendition by Van Morrison of his neighborhood when he was young. And it centers around this character, Madame George. Beautiful, lyrical presentation. Well, I'm the B, and this is Labor and Love. And... The show where we tell you how it is. If you someone gets uh, money they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, at your work, you're probably on the menu. And finally, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor... I mean you. Labor and Love Show, where the labor meets the road. Okay, the show today is going to be dominated by labor history, the history of the California labor movement. I'm playing part two of that um, history. We left off in 1934, the San Francisco General Strike a high point of labor militancy and power. And it's going to lead on from there. And we're looking at, uh, Al, let's see, Arizona teachers, and we're looking at radio labor. Let's do radio labor, labor first. And then we've got Mumia Abu Jamal and some maybe some more music. Radio labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, May 11, 2018. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, hundreds of thousands of union members are marching for a better deal in the UK and Australia. How the US labor movement was weakened. 
the Labor Start report about union events around the world and singing, We Belong to the Union, You Can't Break Gus. This is Radio Labor. members and their supporters on opposite sides of the world are marching for their rights. In Australia, more than 120,000 workers took over the streets of Melbourne for three hours on Wednesday, May 9th. In the UK, a massive demonstration is being planned for Saturday, May 12th. The Australian demonstration was the largest in the country in more than 10 years. It was organized by the Australian Council of Trade Unions in support of the council's Change the Rules campaign. The campaign targets insecure, perilous work and below-inflation wage increases. Change doesn't happen by sitting on the sidelines or watching. Change happens by us making it happen. Rules change because we insist they change. It did not always used to be like this in Australia. We used to have this idea of a fair go. The fair go was written by us, was created by us. We insisted on the eight-hour day. We insisted on the living wage. We insisted that when you're sick, you get Medicare. When you retire, you get superannuation. Meanwhile, another massive union-organized demonstration is being planned in the UK. See Marie Ainsborough reports. The Trades Union Congress in the UK is planning a massive rally of working people and their supporters for Saturday, May 12th. According to the TUC, working people in the UK are fed up with government austerity, poor job prospects for young people, cuts to the National Health Service, and other vital issues. Frances O'Grady is the General Secretary of the British Trades Union Congress. She was interviewed on the Eyes to the Left podcast. What we're saying really is that it's time that we had a new deal for workers because people are put up with living standards falling, pensions being attacked, young people stuck on zero hours contracts, uh, minimum wage too low. Isn't it time that everybody had a decent pay rise and a decent job and that working people were listened to? It's about working people in all walks of life and the private sector as much as the public sector. You know, we've got a lot of manufacturing workers who are really worried about the future. People in the car industry seeing job cuts. People from Bombardier who fought a big campaign uh, to keep work there. People have been facing cuts to their public services. The NHS, you know, struggled through the winter. Hard-working, dedicated staff who are having to fight to get a decent pay rise, and I hope they'll get one. But not just the NHS. This is public services across the board. And it's no longer good enough uh, to tell people to be grateful for a job. I think people rightly want more than just a job. They want a good job you know, the kind of job that you can build a life on and bring a family up on. Um, So I think the conversations change. Of course, everybody wants to see more people in work and any increase in employment is good. But we've got to ask, what kind of work are people getting? And in some ways, the real problem in Britain now maybe 
is less about just unemployment, although that's bad enough if if you find it hard to to get work, but it's about this this new thing called underemployment. You know, when people get a contract, they might get a few hours, uh, they might get a couple of shifts, but they don't know where the next one is coming from. I mean, you know, how do you plan your money? Uh, how do you plan your childcare? How do you plan your life? You know, we know there are millions of people who are now stuck in this kind of zero hours, uh, full self-employment and agency work culture. And the problem is that, you know, again, the government will say, oh, well, that's a stepping stone to permanent work. Well, I'm afraid the evidence is quite the opposite. The evidence is you're stuck in this revolving door and it is hard to get out. So I think it's right that we should prioritise and say to young people, join us because the only way in the end that you're going to get a better deal is by joining up to a union sticking together and fighting for what you're due more information about the london rally can be found on the tuc website and on twitter at hashtag new deal i'm simary ainsborough i gotta tell you i ain't been this excited for a good while that is Richard Trumka, the president of the AFL-CIO in the United States. The AFL-CIO is the largest union federation in the U.S. with some 13 million workers in 56 unions. At a recent conference at Yale University, Mr. Trumka was asked about the current situation of labor in the country and his hopes for the future. He mentions Paul Volcker, who was head of the Federal Reserve during the terms of President Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. The Federal Reserve is the country's national bank. He also mentions the infamous firing of 11,000 members of the Air Traffic Controllers Union, PATCO, in 1981. You know, if you look at it, it was the labor movement that actually built the American middle class after, after World War II uh, through collective bargaining. Uh, we took bad jobs and made them into good jobs. Uh, and, and then when we did that, Productivity soared and wages soared. They were tied together. Productivity and wages were tied together. In, in the mid-70s, a guy by the name of Paul Volcker decided he was going to change the rules. And so he was going to fight wages no matter what he did. The Federal Reserve, as you well know, has two jobs. Fights inflation, but it has to fight for full employment. Volcker said, I'll no longer concern myself with full employment. I will fight in, I will fight inflation, which meant fighting wage increases, in his opinion, even though it had proven wrong because they were tied to productivity. So then you had uh, Ronald Reagan come along, and Ronald Reagan busts uh, a union, PATCO, uh, and says to the world, it's okay to bust unions. Before that, it was taboo. Nobody would bust the union because it was not a good thing to do. It was bad. Uh, because unions had produced the middle class. Unions were helping with health and safety. Unions were creating legislation, pushing legislation to increase the minimum wage, protected pensions. Uh, and he busts the union, and it was free reign after that uh, for them to, to come after unions. And then there's another milestone. When, when the, the wall fell in Europe uh, and, and the Cold War sort of ended, uh, that was a seminal moment when business decided it was okay again to go full tilt boogie to eliminate unions. Because prior to that, you had two systems that were competing. 
You had a communist system, you had a capitalist system, and everybody's saying, this is good, this is better. And, and they didn't want to look bad and drive people to this system. But when communists fell, then it was free game and they came after us. Now, that's the bad news. But here's the good news. Year before last, we organized 251,000 new members. Last year, we organized 262,000 new <laughs> members. Of those people, 75% of those members were under the age of 35. People are angry. The system isn't working for them, and they're looking for a way to change the system and change the rules of the system. Uh, they elected Donald Trump because they thought he would change the rules. He has, not the way they had anticipated. Uh, and so they're looking for that rule change, and they're coming to us. Collectivism in the United States is alive, well, and on the rise. Because you got the women's movement coming together. You got Black Lives Matter. You got young people coming together. You got everybody out there and teachers spontaneously saying, we're gonna change a system that robs us of resources for this school so we can't even give every kid a textbook. And you pay us these paltry wages that we can't live on. Collectivism is alive and well, and I tell you, I ain't felt this good in a long time because I see young people on the rise saying we're stronger when we come together and we can do things together that we can't do alone. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the average of 215 news stories added to our site each day last week. Our top stories section included links to coverage of the huge march in Melbourne, Australia, as unions there escalate their campaign to win labor law modernization, a win in the courts for South African miners suffering from silicosis, and the deaths of 23 miners in Pakistan in a single day. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. 50,000 workers at the University of California walked off the job for three days this week to demonstrate their commitment to their union's bargaining demands. The South African bus strike was in its fourth week, while a strike by their comrades in New Zealand started this week. The president of Ghana went to England for a medical checkup as healthcare workers refused to perform routine tasks in their wage strike. Romanian healthcare workers ended their strike against wage cuts. The outcome is unclear at this point. Twenty days in, and there is no sign of weakness in the Panamanian construction workers' strike. And Israeli dockers shut the country's major ports for a day in an effort to stop the creation of privately owned port facilities. Our top working women's stories included coverage of the campaign to decriminalize sex work in the United Kingdom, union responses to claims of pay equity in Ireland, and the news that a woman Tunisian trade union leader has won an award for her tireless organizing for the rights of workers, especially women workers. The Health and Safety Newswire, we run in cooperation with Hazards Magazine, carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the deaths of seven mine workers in South Africa and at least two in Poland, a report that fewer than half of large workplaces in India provide safety training to contract workers, the launch of a transport workers campaign to reduce the number of truckers who die on Australian roads each year, 
and the terrible news that 117 Turkish workers were killed at work in April. Currently, Labor Start is running four online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is the Australian folk singer Tim O'Brien with We Belong to the Union, You Can't Break Us. my pride and bust my face scatter my rights all over the place and take the bread from off my plate but you can't break me lock me out chain the gates put black shirts in with dogs and mace I'll hold the line won't step away cause you can't break me I belong you belong we belong to the union don't count me out when I'm on the floor we'll win will ring with a mighty roar Cause you can't break me Stocks rise up on workers' backs Profits soar while you hand out the sack Boardroom bullies bloated and fat But you can't break me Australia's sold to mates offshore Backroom deals and shonky law This day has come, we say no more You can't break me I belong, you belong, we belong And that's it. International Labor... And that was our uh, Radio Labor um, segment about uh, big strikes in Australia, Trungpa and his uh, analysis of the decline of uh, labor movements, labor unions. He might be right, but the format that people are going to express themselves in will not be a big, undemocratic, top-down union, an institution in itself. It's going to be people who have hit the limit, who, who have no choice. Everybody's not a screaming organizer or communist. Most people are driven to resistance because they can't stand it anymore. They can't stand the pressure on them. They can't stand the way their lives are when they work all the time. 
Okay, so Trungpa talking about let's let's get on with um with um Fred Glass's history of the California labor movement. It's called Golden Lands Working Hands. And we played uh, part of it last week. Shape Up and Fink Hall are gone and replaced by union-run hiring halls. Workers govern their organization through rank-and-file union democracy. Sailors Union leader Harry Lundeberg and longshoreman Harry Bridges bring together a powerful federation of maritime unions. The owners are furious, but maritime workers have learned how to take care of themselves. News you can is gone. Industrial unionism is established on the West Coast, and it's radical. My land I'll defend with my life if it be, cause my pastures of plenty must always be free. The largest cotton fields in the world can be found at this time in the San Joaquin Valley. The people who pick the cotton are expected to fill 100-pound bags daily for 60 cents each. Even with children picking, families... We're beginning with in the 1930s with a great cotton strike. The California AFL is officially disinterested in farm labor. As Labor Federation leader Paul Scharenberg puts it, Only fanatics are willing to live in shacks or tents and get their heads broken in the interests of migratory workers. In this vacuum, the Cannery and Agricultural Workers Industrial Union, led by communists, organizes the pickers. In 1933, 18,000 cotton workers on dozens of ranches shocked the growers by striking. Mass picket lines spread quickly thanks to the family and social networks of Mexican-American farm workers who had begun organizing unions a few years earlier in cotton and other crops. Here, striking berry pickers in El Monte, a Los Angeles suburb, ask other workers to leave the fields and join the strike. The cards are stacked against the workers. When growers fire into an unarmed union crowd in Pixley, killing two strikers, a friendly judge acquits them of murder charges. On the other hand, union leaders Pat Chambers and Carolyn Decker are sentenced to years in prison under the Criminal Syndicalism Act simply for organizing the strikes. Crushed between grower violence and hostile forces of law and order, the CAWIU goes under in 1935. But in leading tens of thousands of workers in strikes, it demonstrates the potential for farm labor organizing. It enhances the reputation of the Communist Party among some of the poorest groups of California workers. It also forces the growers to raise wages throughout the state. Late in 1934, the American Federation of Labor meets in San Francisco. We insist, we propose that the hours of work in America shall be reduced to the point where the slack of unemployment shall be taken up. And for that reason, 
we stand unflinchingly for the application of the six-hour day and the five-day week in industry. Despite the AFL leader's radical-sounding speech, neither he nor a majority of AFL unions have responded to the new mood for organizing among working people. A few unions do commit themselves to organizing the unorganized. When they form the Committee for Industrial Organization, the CIO, a split develops. Most AFL unions continue to organize skilled craft workers, as they have for decades. This leaves out most women, immigrants, and workers of color who are segregated into less skilled jobs. They had written into, the, into their bylaws in many of the unions a clause excluding uh, uh, non-Caucasians, machinists, the uh, electrical workers, the plumbers, the carpenters. Uh, uh, until the CIO came into being, why, the unions, in the main, were segregated. The CIO unions take a different approach. They want to organize everyone. This orientation makes the CIO a civil rights movement, too. Rose Pesota organizes Latina garment workers in Los Angeles for the Ladies' Garment Workers Union. Luisa Moreno, organizer of the Southern California Cannery Workers, rises to become a vice president of the National CIO Cannery Workers Union. In 1936, Green and the more conservative unions, threatened by the CIO's militancy, throw 10 CIO unions out of the AFL. West Coast Maritime unions leave the AFL and join the CIO. The direct action style of the sailors and longshoremen fits well within the new organization. So does the CIO's emphasis on democratic, member-run union meetings. Labor's political strength grows, too. Union grassroots volunteers and fundraising puts Colbert Olson into the governor's office in 1938. Fulfilling a campaign promise, he frees Tom Mooney from prison after 23 long years. Mooney's release is symbolic. Throughout California and the nation, millions of people join unions. An entire generation of workers learns from experience that they create their own power. Their militancy pressures politicians into signing protective labor laws. Labor, led by the CIO, is finally on the march. Labor power grows dramatically during the Depression but unions can't end the economic hard times. The war does. It converts automobile factories to tank and aircraft production. To the Golden State is added a new luster, full employment in high-paying union defense jobs. <laughs> Lots of money everywhere. More money than the Valley had seen in a long, long time. 
and everybody wanted to spend it. No wonder people are flocking to see the Oldsmobile B44. They know there's a B44 for every buyer. The composition of the workforce, the Union rank and file, is transformed by the war. From each state in the Union, and almost every hamlet in the nation, these 20th century pioneers converged on San Francisco Bay. African Americans come up from the South to work in shipyards. Now tell me, brother pilgrim, tell me where I'm bound. You're bound for dear old Canaan to that enchanted ground. My cousin lived in Marin City, was a welder in Sausalito Marin Shipyard. She wrote that we should come here and work. So I came out on the train. Uh, they only had two coaches for black people. And I rode in the aisle on my suitcase. I sat on my suitcase the distance from Shreveport to California. So I started making a dollar and 20 an hour, where I had made a little more, perhaps, than a dollar 20 a week in Shreveport. Things was really looking up for me. White farming families emigrate from Oklahoma, Arkansas, and the Southwest. Out of the dust bowl and westward we rolled, and your deserts are hot and your mountains are cold. Women exchange housework for a good union paycheck in the war industries. So I took a course that the government gave and learned all about uh, how you go about doing it in a theoretical way. We had nothing but paper and pencil to help us. Uh, and I passed my little test very well and went right over to Kaiser. They are taking to welding as though the welding rod were a needle and the metal a length of cloth to be sewn. After a short apprenticeship, a woman can operate this drill press as easily as a juice extractor in her own kitchen. Shipyards become the birthplace of a modern navy. At any time the tide dictated, day or night, rain or shine, ships quietly slipped into San Francisco Bay faster and faster. To ensure uninterrupted production, the government persuades companies to stop resisting labor organizing. Unions are granted the closed shop. Workers must join their union as a condition of employment. The newcomer became a member of the shipyard family by signing at the employment office. He was recorded as a home front worker and secured his union membership and clearance. In return, unions agree to a no-strike pledge for the duration of the war. Now, grievance procedures, not work stoppages, resolve conflict. Direct rank-and-file involvement and mass participation is replaced by a more bureaucratic union representation system. The union's responses to these changes in the workforce vary. When shipyards arise overnight in Oakland, Richmond, and Sausalito, membership in the AFL Boilermakers Union Local 6 grows from 2,000 to 40,000. At first, the leadership of this local refuses to admit blacks, even after the Boilermakers across the bay pass a resolution urging them to integrate. Oddly enough, Ed Rainbow, business manager of Local 6, is a Native American. By the weird logic of the period, he is considered white. Under pressure from the government and community groups, the Boilermakers create a separate local for African Americans. This isn't good enough for Joseph James, a San Francisco NAACP activist who works as a welder in Marinship, or Ray Thompson, an East Bay ship fitter. 
They lead campaigns for fair employment practices in the yards and by the union. Early in 1945, the union agrees to integrate its local. Other unions don't need to be urged to offer full membership rights. Shipyard Labor's local 886 also grows from a relative handful to 18,000 members. Unlike the Boilermakers, it admits everyone as a glimpse of a membership meeting in 1943 shows. Local 886 makes a film to show new workers introducing them to the union, its officers, and what it stands for. No favoritism is shown to any color or creed. Every man and woman has exactly the same rights and privileges as the next. Shipyard laborers practices what it preaches, hiring Harry Lumsden to work for the local as a staff representative. Other unions go one step further. The CIO United Auto Workers, organizing in Southern California aircraft plants, insists on anti-discrimination clauses in its contracts. Pervasive racial and sexual discrimination is practiced by corporations. The president of North American Aviation expresses a typical attitude. While we are in complete sympathy with the Negro, it is against company policy to employ them as aircraft workers or mechanics. In protest, a. Philip Randolph and C. L. Dellums of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, an all-black AFL railroad union, threatened to organize a national African-American march on Washington. Fearing negative publicity during the War for Democracy, Roosevelt signs Executive Order 8802 mandating fair employment practices in war industries. Unfortunately, enforcement ends with the close of the war. And We're um, taking a pause now from uh, Golden Land's working hands. We've worked our way up to World War II with our history of California labor. And um, these were heady days for labor, um, the late 30s. A lot of things done in the CIO, things like um, labor schools, labor history, you know, um, interviews with the workers, that whole idea of actually going to the subject that you're thinking and talking about and actually meeting real people who are involved in it happened a lot. There were labor schools where people were taught labor theory and uh, labor history, labor theory, um, labor, labor concerns. I mean, wouldn't it be great if there were schools where people could practice um, stepping in at the job or creating campaigns within their workplace and without and with a greater society. Anyway, we'll get back to Fred Glass. want to play a something about the Arizona teachers. And this is uh, 
the New York Times. And the New York Times is saying Arizona teachers end walkout as governor signs bill approving raises. A week into a statewide teacher walkout in Arizona, Governor Doug Ducey, I think that's his name, signed on a budget bill on Thursday that he said would provide teachers with the 20% raises they demanded in addition to new funds for classrooms. While the organizers of the walkout said the bill might not produce as much as the governor promised, they announced an end to their labor action, which had kept hundreds of thousands of children out of school. Arizona is the fourth state this year after West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Kentucky where protesting teachers left classrooms and won concessions from conservative lawmakers. Though the agreements have often fallen short of initial demands. In some of the states, it has produced, proved easier for Republicans to sort, support pay raises for educators than to provide the large annual funding increases for classrooms that teachers and many parents are asking for. And at least one additional state, North Carolina, is expecting a widespread teacher walkout in the coming weeks. So I hadn't heard about uh, North Carolina. I haven't been hearing about much lately. School leaders across North Carolina Brace for mass teacher absences during the upcoming protest. As Durham considers closing schools because of massive teacher absences, other districts across North Carolina are trying to gauge the scope of a May 16th march in Raleigh that could leave schools scrambling for subs. Charlotte Mecklenburg schools expect to have a preliminary tally Friday of how many teachers are leaving that day. Uh, School board chairman Mary McRae. Meanwhile, district leaders are trying to line up all available substitute teachers and drawing up plans to send top administrators in to teach classes. I would be willing to go sub in a classroom if need be, said McRae, a retired teacher and former president of the Charlotte Mecklenburg Association of Educators. Even though Raleigh is in Wake County, which would make it close geographically for teachers to attend the march, Wake school officials say they're not seeing large numbers of educators who are requesting the day off. Lisa Luton, the Wake School's spokeswoman, said they have enough substitute teachers at this point to cover for the day. The Durham District has said nearly 1,000 teachers are about 41% of its teaching core have requested personal leave May 16th, with some schools reporting that nearly all will be absent. Uh, 
Leaders of the North Carolina Association of Educators are careful to say their May 16th action is neither a walkout nor a strike. North Carolina is a right-to-work state where teacher strikes are illegal. However, state law gives teachers the right to take personal leave with at least five days' advance notice as long as the substitute is available and the teacher pays a $50 require substitute deduction. Okay, we'll have to keep our eye on that. That'll be this week. That'll be definitely something to watch. Um, Very interesting. For so long now, um, assembly people, senate people, you know, in state legislatures have depended on teachers to pick up the bill for things they need in their classrooms. In effect, what they've done is count on teachers' well, good feeling with their kids and desire to uplift their kids. Uh, they've counted on that money. So now teachers are demanding, and I mean... The, it's, it's just interesting where it's coming from because it's coming from, it's a direct result of, uh, of uh, monetary theories, economic theories. You know, you squeeze the hell, what is it called? A word that describes it, of not spending much money not doing much social spending. Um, and it's, all you know, that day is over now because of teachers. Teachers kept getting shaken down, didn't get raises. At any rate, more power to them. And let's keep an eye on that situation. Here's Mumia Abu Jamal, and this was recorded... I want to say a few years ago, um, Abu Jamal speaks after 30 years on death row. Here he is, Mumia. No, Mumia? Here we go. I think I think we got him now. This is Abu Jamal speaking to Russian TV. And more than half of his life monitored and controlled. Watched by the FBI since the age of 14, revolutionary activist and journalist Mumia Abu Jamal spent three decades of his life on death row. I like to tell myself that I've actually spent a lot of that time uh, beyond the bars and in other countries and, you know, uh, in other parts of the world because I did so mentally but you know mental can only take you so far um, the truth of the matter is I spent most of my living years in my lifetime on death row in January Mumia had his sentence reduced to life without parole he called in to speak exclusively with RT from prison the feeling of looming execution still hard for him to shake 
in many ways, even to this day, in my own mind, if not in fact, I'm still on death row. In 1981, the former Black Panther was accused of killing a police officer in Philadelphia. Mumia has always maintained his innocence. His analysis is a revolutionary analysis, that this system is rotten to its core, that it's racist, classist, sexist, evil, <laughs> and that it is the head, the leader of an imperialist um, domination of the world. It is this Mumia and his supporters say that led to his arrest. This was a police frame-up against a revolutionary journalist and activist, very well-known organizer in Philadelphia, outspoken against police abuse. While the U.S. claims to not hold political prisoners, Mumia has become one of the most well-known in the world. An honorary, award-holding citizen in over 20 cities, with a street named after him in France. Mumia's books have been translated into nine languages and sold hundreds of thousands of copies. His case is one of the most debated in modern legal history. Fifteen of the police officers involved in collecting evidence in Mumia's trial were later charged with corruption and tampering with evidence to obtain a conviction. Fifteen of the 33. For supporters, a symbol of a flawed justice system, Mumia says U.S. prisons are built for the broke and the homeless, while mass incarceration in America has reached unthinkable levels. In California alone, exceeds that of France, of Belgium, of England, and perhaps you, I could name four or five other countries combined. You know, so it's, it's monstrous. Mumia says the adoption of laws like the Patriot Act and the NDAA have given Big Brother tactics a legitimacy unimaginable when he was still a free man. Everything that was illegal back in the 1960s and 1950s and 1970s, they've legalized it. They've legalized it. They've legalized the very things that FBI agents and administrators knew was criminal back then. So where is America headed? It's election season in the United States right now. Who do people trust? Who would you vote for? Nobody frankly, because most of the people that are out there are the two major political parties, and when they talk, you know, all I hear is a kind of madness, uh, an unreasonableness, um, uh, a wish to return to days of yore, the 1950s, or they talk about the perpetuation of the American empire, imperialism. My God, I mean, what is there to vote for? As our 15-minute monitored phone call from jail wraps up... We have 30 that. seconds remaining. Mumia has a message for those who believe in him. Organize, 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 and I love you all, and I thank you for fighting for me. Now let's fight together to be free. Anastasia Cherkina, RT, New York. And there you have it straight from the mouth of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Organize, organize, organize. And thanks for caring about me. North Carolina? How about... Uh, working class history? Let's look up some working class history. Um... Today, I want to say uh, it was a woman's strike, but I, I can't. Here, I'll look it up. Um, 
On this day, May 12th, 1916, James Connolly was executed by a firing squad at Kilmanham Jail in Dublin. He was sentenced to death by the British authorities for his role in leading an armed revolt that had aimed to establish an Irish Republic. Because he had been wounded in the fighting, he faced the firing squad tied in a chair. James Connolly, well known to listeners of this show. On this day, May 12th, well, let's see. Okay, well, let's go on with Fred Glass. Um, My computer is not helping the situation. Let's see. Okay, so a little word about Fred Glass and his project. I met Glass in uh, the late 90s when he was just putting the finishing touches on Golden Land's working hands. Uh, I think I went and looked up a couple of photos for him or something. Um, But um, it's in 10 parts designed for teachers so you could show a short piece to your students, you know, maybe 15 minutes, and then go on, you know, the next time to do it. But it's about three hours total of, of running time. And uh, Glass has really created a masterpiece. Um, he did a lot of, of uh, research and came up with a lot of very rare footage and then threw in some actors, one of them Herbert Seguenza of um, Culture Club, Culture Clash. Oh, you better get that right. Um, to work on this production. And so they did. Uh, Really, let's see. Okay, let's listen to Afro. Thank you. 
Okay, I thought you would like that one. That's uh, Francis Bebe, African Electronic Music from the years 1975 to 1982. Electronic music from an African artist. Right, let's continue now. We're on part seven of Golden Land's Working Hands, and Here's a challenge question for you. When was the last general strike in a major American city? The last general strike in a major American city. Answer here. Although California unions emerged from the war years bigger than they had ever been, their size hides a potential weakness. Many newcomers don't know how their brothers and sisters won their rights and paychecks through the hard battles of the pre-war years. But most labor leaders have added responsibilities and worries. Teaching new workers about unionism takes time that's hard to find. This soon becomes a problem. With the wartime emergency over, many employers want to bring back the good old days of the anti-union open shop. was after the war and uh, I think we needed to get our share. The industry had sure made theirs during the war and we were all, uh, you had uh, wage and price controls so uh, most of us we were locked into, uh, into wages. Wages have to be frozen Joe. The workers are making too much money for their own good and prices haven't risen very much. In response to the boss's anti-labor offensive, working people launched the greatest wave of strikes in the United States history. Across the country, millions of workers walk picket lines shutting down entire industries. Many are World War II veterans, disturbed at their poor treatment after fighting for their country. In Hollywood, thousands of craft workers organized in the left-wing conference of studio unions led by set painter Herb Sorrell, battled the studio bosses, the police, and another union. Roy Brewer, a leader of the International Association of Theatrical and Stage Employees, brings strike breakers across the picket lines. 
He hopes his members will keep these jobs. Brewer claims his opponent Sorel is a communist and skillfully develops this idea into a publicity strategy for the studios. In an atmosphere of growing anti-communist hysteria, Brewer's tactic works well. The conference of studio unions is soon broken up. Many of its members lose their jobs or have to switch unions to keep working. Along with prominent actors, writers, and directors, Sorel is investigated and blacklisted. He never works in Hollywood again. Despite his troubles, Sorel takes the time to send a message of support northward to AFL brothers and sisters involved in another struggle. In Oakland, California, a general strike tied up the entire area. Bus and train service ceased to exist in a dispute characterized by Dave Beck, teamster leader in the far west area, as a lot of foolishness and more like a revolution than an industrial dispute. Meanwhile, the lives of nearly three-quarters of a million people had been affected. Hold on. Did you understand what you just saw? I didn't. The perspective of the newsreel seems to be that these Oakland workers were doing something senseless. Using the same film footage, perhaps we could imagine another perspective. Something like this. Owners of Kahn's and Hastings department stores refused to recognize a union favored by their employees. Hundreds of clerks went out on strike. Police beat up picketers and helped the Retail Merchants Association bring goods across picket lines. Outraged Oakland unionists called a general strike. For two days, Oakland stood still until owners and the city agreed to negotiate with workers' representatives. Okay, we've heard two different sets of facts. The newsreel selected some, we selected others. But each version of the story is missing something. Perhaps the striking workers themselves should be heard from. I was working in the shoe department, and I was making, uh, I believe, uh, $28 a week at that time, and, uh, you know, just getting out of the service. The only problem was that when I found, after talking to other people in, in specialty stores, just, such as Peter Brothers and, and Cushions, uh, they were making $10 or better a week, better than I was. And I went to the union and uh, asked why they didn't organize the store. These people came on back, and I mean, the, you know, my uh, brother Americans uh, and, and also the gals that came back from the war. And, and when they held out their hand for just a little piece of pie, the answer was no. One employer whose voice says no the loudest is Joseph Noland, publisher of the Oakland Tribune and longtime spokesman for conservative business interests. His newspaper labels moderate unionists extreme elements and warns of an impending communist takeover of Oakland. Nolan dominated the uh, politics in Oakland, and he had the, the Tribune, which was his voice. And uh, everyone felt that all the decisions for the city were made at the Tribune Tower, not at City Hall. Very, very conservative, mm -hmm. very anti-union. His paper was something that we got every day to read and then got mad about. <laughs> Along with Nolan, another major anti-union force in Oakland is the Retail Merchants Association. It demands that the retail clerks union organize all 28 stores in the association before it will recognize the union at Cannes and Hastings. What precipitated the strike was the firing of one of the people who had joined the union. One of the ladies um, who had joined and signed up with the union was fired. Originally we had somewhere in the area of between 70 and 80 percent of the workers came out. And I would say the same thing applied at Hastings. The women were fantastic as far as uh, holding up. 
and, and their sense of humor and, and, uh, and being on the picket lines. I'd set the schedules up and they'd be there, rain or shine. Well, it was like any picket line. Everybody walked up and down, carried signs and, and yelled, don't be a scab. <laughs> it was pretty effective. They were keeping most of the people out. People would come, see what was going on, and then turn away. But some went through. And tempers would flare. Uh, but I think that the, the tempers that flared were not the pickets, but the people going through the line, knowing in their own heart, very probably, that they were doing the wrong thing. Despite a mostly peaceful picket line, feelings sometimes run high. Picket Captain Gwendolyn Byfield calls a strikebreaker scab and rat. She is arrested, but charges are dropped. After weeks go by without a settlement, the Retail Merchants Association and their friends in the Nolan political machine decide to take a different approach. I went back over to the picket line. By time I got back over there, why the, the uh, cops were are pushing our people off the street and uh, towing the automobiles away. They beat us all out of the alleys. Uh, pushed us with those damn billy clubs. I was black and blue here for months. The trucks followed right behind them, went on in and unloaded. Then they went back to get more. It wasn't bringing in strike breakers necessarily that started the general strike. You know, I thought about that a lot since that. We'd seen strike breakers. But the thing was, using the police force that we were paying taxes for to beat us off our own streets. By morning, everybody had heard about what had happened. It was in the papers, and the unions had heard. Everybody was very upset, and we all just went out on the streets. There was a club down there called Slim Jenkins. We were working there four nights a week when we got the call from Alex Forbes, who was our secretary business agent, that there was a general strike, and that if he had any musicians working in Oakland, that they were to immediately leave their jobs and which we did, we didn't go to work that weekend. <laughs> Al Brown was the head of the Carmen's local at that time. The streetcars were still running on Broadway. And he came down Broadway in a streetcar. And the police were out there and they had Broadway blocked off. And he came up to the blockade and the, uh, the cops said, it's all right, you can take your streetcar through. And he said, well, what's the deal? They told him what they were doing, and he said, well, no, I've never crossed a picket line in my life, and I'm not about to now. So he climbed out, he took the controls out of the streetcar, climbed out of the streetcar, and that was it. That was the spark that started the whole thing at that particular time, because every streetcar backed up behind him. They couldn't move his streetcar. He told the buses to stop, and uh, they had an uh, emergency meeting, and uh, for three days, just about, nothing turned in Alameda County. They didn't call it general strike, but called it a work holiday. Everybody was having a good time, but the crowd was good. Uh, nothing unruly. I didn't see any liquor, didn't see any, well, where, where could you buy it? It was a holiday mood. It was a feeling of comradeship. It was the feeling that, well, we're all together in this thing, you know? And it was a good, warm, healthy feeling. It was more like what this country should be. Lay that pistol down, babe. Lay that pistol. When Sailors Union leader Harry Lunderberg delivers a fiery address to an overflow crowd at Oakland Auditorium, strike leader Bob Ash thinks that if he had asked the assembly to march to City Hall, they'd have taken the place apart. The biggest fear that we had 
during the general strike was we didn't want it to get out of hand. We wanted a peaceful demonstration, as peaceful as could be. And really it was, when you stop and think that there was only the one incident of the typewriter being thrown through the window at Hastings. Outside of that, nothing really happened. We might ask one more question. How could a union leader, Teamster National Vice President Dave Beck, say the general strike was... A lot of foolishness, and more like a revolution than an industrial dispute. The General Strike Committee, led by Bob Ash, brings the general strike to a hasty end when Beck orders Teamster members, who'd been solidly supportive of the strike, to go back to work. Dave Beck, who are you talking about? You're talking about a man that made millions, went to prison and everything else. He never really represented these unions the way it should be represented. The CIO notified us that if it went past Thursday, that they'd shut off lights and power. And I wanted to continue one more day and shut off the lights and power. Then we'd have had the whole ball of wax. But the AFL leadership was worried that intervention by militant CIO unions, representing 30,000 workers in Alameda County in utilities and heavy industry, would invite a negative public perception, since a number of communists and their sympathizers were prominent in the Northern California CIO Council. I think the old CIO, Congress of Industrial Organizations, uh, had a little bit of a, a bad taint to it at that time. J. Edgar Hoover and a few others were witch-hunting them and, and uh, working on the communist tactics and the rest of it. And we tried to keep them away from the picket line as much as possible so that we wouldn't have that sort of thing happening to us. Instead, the AFL strike committee accepts a verbal commitment from the city manager that Oakland police would no longer assist strike-breaking. They end the general strike Thursday morning after 54 hours. The settlement leaves the retail clerk strike unresolved which irritates many of their supporters, including Elizabeth Mackin. She writes a letter to Kahn's department store. It is against my principles to go through a picket line. I wish you to close out my account until you have a happier relationship with those who work for you. Despite the obvious depth of community support for the clerks, Kahn's and Hastings still refuse to recognize the union. Worse, the day after the general strike ends, police bring scabs to the retail clerk's picket lines. Feeling betrayed, labor leaders threaten another general strike. Wait, Joe. There's a better way. Recognizing the need for unity against the Nolan forces, the AFL, the CIO, the NAACP, and other progressive community groups formed the Oakland Voters League. We had put together all the precinct maps and had these lists of people. We divided the precincts up into areas of 10 precincts. I was given a map of the precincts. I was given a list of names. I didn't know where they came from and said, go find people to cover the precincts. It was a very interesting experience. This was in uh, West Oakland, an area of mixed black and white. Building a bridge between the labor movement and minority communities, the OVL runs five candidates in the spring 1947 city council election. It all went off amazingly smoothly and was a wonderful victory when we won four out of the five candidates. Although this leaves the Oakland Voters League one seat short of a majority on the nine-member council, Labor's victory cracks the anti-union Nolan machine for the first time in decades. Oakland's working people have a political voice and can no longer be ignored. One result is that the week after the election, the Retail Merchants Association recognizes the retail clerk's union in all of its stores. Whoever won before in Oakland? 
you showed by the general strike, if you hang together, you can take anybody on. It was a, a unique experience in my life to be involved in anything with such masses of people. I was really proud of the union members that came out. It, it convinced me more than ever that the union, union was the way to go for working people. When you say, what did it do for people, I think it, it, it gave them a greater sense of power. But not all California working people share in that sense of power. In 1948, Hollywood unions make this film, Poverty in the Valley of Plenty. It is meant to educate the public about the plight of hundreds of striking farm workers at the DiGiorgio Fruit Corporation ranch near Bakersfield. The corporation had kept the workers segregated by race in its eating and sleeping facilities. The National Farm Labor Union Local 218, AFL, led by Ernesto Galarza and Jimmy Price, had a different idea to bring all the farm workers together for union recognition and a 10 cent an hour wage increase. We haven't a chance as individuals, but an organization will have strength. How many of you are with me? Aye. One new member at a nearby farm is a young Chicano farm worker receiving his first union card. Fanning out across the state, the farm workers gained wide support. Car caravans organized by the San Francisco and Los Angeles Labor Councils bring donated food and clothing. Most of the workers have to find other employment within a few months. For two years, though, a core group of workers keeps the strike going with the help of the California Labor Federation and friends in the community. But the other side is organized, too. Somebody shot into the local meeting at Arvin uh, hit Jimmy Price, he went down, severely injured, although not killed, and no one was ever apprehended in that situation, and, and of course, our people uh, didn't feel very good about the sheriff and the, and, the, and the law enforcement process. Although Price survives, the strike does not. The Giorgio's trucks are used to break picket lines, to bring in scabs and strike breakers. Oddly enough, this film, Poverty in the Valley of Plenty, ends matters. The DiGiorgio Corporation sues Local 218 for $2 million for libel. The union has no money to contest the case. It signs a settlement out of court agreeing that the film is libelous, that it will pay DiGiorgio $1 in damages, recall all copies of the film, and end the strike. The longest farm labor strike in American history is over. But while the farm workers lose this round, the seeds have been planted for later success. Okay, you heard uh, parts, part of part five, part six and part seven of Golden Lands Working Hands, the history of the California labor movement. You can get the CD, the DVD that is, from CFT, California Federation of Teachers, 
and reach him at www.cft.org or call the office in Berkeley. All right, well, this is supposed to be a music show as well as a... <laughs> as well as an I Talk You Listen show or someone else talks and we all listen. Here's Brother Charlie Morgan talking about the food industry. The other day I was in the mood for some energy in the form of food and greeting the owner as I entered the store, I didn't realize what I was in for. Test tube food. <laughs> as I walked down the aisle from the shelves, the packages all tried to sell themselves. I'm ten cents off. Buy me you. I got pink and purple hues. Howard Hughes, Test Tube Blues. You'll like me, honey, said some salad oil. The figure of my bottle will never spoil. And on my back, there's an offer label for a CD player for your kitchen table. Sorry, sister. You look a little bit too oil slicky for me. This food's fun, it'll get your girls, and the coupon gets your flag that unfurls to the beat of the Spangled Banner song. You better try it now, the offer won't last long. Homeland Security food, you eat it, and it does surveillance inside you the rest of your life. I found out where the produce were, and I bebopped on over there. I said they chemical rated this food with bombs like the plants and the people in Vietnam. Agent Oranges. I held a tomato in my hand. It was red but hard, you understand. Tomato, I said, this ain't your natural beauty. You're a drugged up money making cutie. Just a pretty face. Folks that grew your love, only wealth, they don't give a damn about our health. Shut up and package without love. Tomato, you weren't grown up, you were shoved. I know. Your upbringing's gonna bring me down. Still standing in the produce section of a supermarket, surrounded by people uh, speaking to a tomato. By eating you, I'm gonna bum trip, kid. You done more drugs than I ever did. We're victims of a capitalistic raid and the folks that picked you were underpaid. Viva Cesar Chavez! The cash register ring awakened me and it brought me out of my fantasy. And I went and I spoke to the counter cat and I told him just where I was at. Here and now, wow, wow.
I said, Lord knows I got a rumbling gut and my stomach thinks my throat's been cut. But I ain't about to have my insides glued by this poison I call test tube food. You eat it. Wrong. Wrong. Rah, rah, rah. Yeah, there's plenty of things here you want me to swallow, but my body and soul would still be hollow. Besides, I sing off-key madrigals if I ate a food with 17 syllables. Easier to swallow a scrabble board. Methyl oxide, potassium methyl, was that their regular ethyl? There's Panama red and there's methyl red and one will leave you tired and the other one dead, take your pick. Now through corporate proclivities, some food has radioactivity. Glowing proof that yours can be a radiant nuclear family. You don't even have to cook it either. You just open the can on the counter and it has a meltdown. So I went to a place where the food was fast serving clone cows raised on pasture land rainforest once. I think I'd rather have some slow food for lunch, but not a corporate burger. It could have come from a septic company merger and it ain't no fun to eat what's in between those buns. Now I ain't quite ready to live just on the rays of the sun like I know some Indian yogis have done. But you are what you eat and how strange you see to go by the name of MSG.
So let the way of women guide democracy And from plunder and pollution and Mother Earth be free Feminism ain't about women, but that's not who it is for It's about shifting consciousness that we're bringing into war So listen up, you fathers, listen up, you sons And tell me which side are you on now, which side are you
Okay. That was uh, the boss, Bruce Springsteen, with a traditional working man's song, Pay Me My Money Down. began as a song among uh, African-American dock workers in Georgia and uh, was adopted, sung by Lead Belly, and uh, became a, a staple of working-class historical music. We also had, had Annie DeFranco with another traditional labor song, Who's, Which Side Are You On?, written in 1931 by Florence Reese during a uh, coal workers strike which side are you on boys and I preceded that with Charlie Morgan's test tube blues certainly as much or even more relevant now uh, than it was when he, he cut the, the song Certainly our food has become, as it became more and more of a commodity, food became cheapened. We eat food now that's uh, not made with love, that's not made with craft, food that's fabricated, not cooked, not prepared. Okay, working class History. I want to talk about Virgilia de Andrea. On this day, May 12, 1933, Virgilia, Italian anti-fascist poet Virgilia de Andrea, who had been involved in the mass factory occupations in 1920, died in New York. Born on February 11, 1890, of a class in middle-class family in Sulmona, southern Italy, an orphan in early youth, Virgili was confined and educated in a Catholic institution, which she left at the age of 18 to become a schoolteacher. For some time, she taught young children in the elementary schools, and her name is still remembered and honored by townspeople who knew her as an earnest young girl. She didn't continue as a school teacher. She joined the social struggle. She found herself poet, teacher, and fighter with and for the masses. In 1922, after the power of the state had been handed over to Mussolini by a bunch of satraps who were his accomplices. Virgili, in danger of her life and powerless to carry on any further, emigrated to Germany, of all places, where she endured not only the moral sufferings that go with forced exile, but all sorts of physical privations as well. She shared the hopes of a coming liberation in Italy when in 1914, during the famous days of the Red Week, the proletariat had risen in armed revolt against the ruling class. And again in 1920, when the social revolution 
seemed so sure to come. The Italian workers had then seized and gained almost complete control of the factories and workshops, while the peasants were taking control of the land. Both movements failed to mature owing to the cowardice and treachery of the Socialist Party and its leaders. Virgilia de Andrea, we honor you. More than that, we honor the workers who died today. Some 480 of them. A worker dies every 15 seconds all around the world from job-related conditions or things that happen exactly on the job. Okay, let's play one more. Getting kind of late, 11.48. And we'll go out with the Internacional. This is the B. Signing off for May 12th, 2018. Wishing you a good week, good health, and good work. Join me again next Saturday at 10 a.m. live, or all our shows are archived at KPA, pardon me, mutinyradio.fm, and or iTunes under Labor and Love Radio. Bye, everybody. Bye, Solina. Without a patter. Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. 
From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Hey everybody, listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2pm. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2pm. brings you visual and auditory mind control. For the best graphic design, physical merchandise, and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.Evan. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. (laughs) Well, hello, boys and girls. You know what a password is. That's a secret word that soldiers would use to get past the sentry and up to the front. Well, here's a password that gets you up to the front in all the right places. It's cannabis energy. It seems the faster you go, the more cannabis energy you need. So if you want to win, you have to have lots of cannabis energy. 
and the swellest way I know to get it is just by using Green Army Skincare. Boy, they're just crammed full of cannabis energy. There are more cannabis energy units in one lip balm tube than you use circling the base 10 times or when you ride your bike four miles across the city. And it's fast acting. Why, no sooner that you apply some balm to your mouth or pain areas, you practically feel the new strength in your muscles. And what's more, Green Army Skincare is a good, wholesome product. They're made with body nourishing cannabis and other natural ingredients. So go out there today and pick up some Green Army Skincare products from your local cannabis procurement center. Join thegreenarmy.com. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to invite you down to Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco at 806 South Van Ness. Uh, we've got great food by our kitchen counter offer, burgers, tater tots, tachos, corn dogs, all sorts of good stuff like that. They're open from opening until 11 p.m. most days of the week, except Saturday. Uh, every Saturday night, we've got live rock and roll, some of the best local bands in San Francisco and touring acts as well. Come on down, 10 p.m., rock and roll, only night of the week. We have a $5 cover charge, always 5 bucks for live rock and roll. We're open from 4 p.m. until 2 a.m., Monday through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 2 to 2. Come on down, have some drinks with us. We've got Whiskey Wednesday, Tequila Tuesday, and we've always got the Steve McQueen special. Shot a bullet bourbon and a can of California lager for 8 bucks. Come down and enjoy our patio. It's open uh, in the afternoon, not really in the evening, but a lot of good folks hanging out back there. Come on down, give us a shout. Drop by the bar, make some friends. Thanks, folks. Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District, San Francisco, California. With a happy hour every Monday through Friday until 7 p.m. Don't miss it. Go to Bender's Bar. Big supporter of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2018. Yeah, it goes down. Come smoke with your boy. Grinder. Spark is San Francisco's premier cannabis dispensary with a focus on serving and educating patients for seven years. Spark is dedicated to creating the best in-store experience with its extensive menu, friendly staff, and one of the few cannabis vape lounges in San Francisco. Spark welcomes you to visit its two great locations as a medical patient or for recreational adult use in 2018. Spark is located at 1256 Mission Street between 8th and 9th and at 473 Haight Street at Fillmore. Both locations are open until 10 p.m. every night. Spark staff looks forward to serving you. Coming at these bitches and all these snitches hitting switches going back to riches. Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned and operated food cooperative located at 1745 Folsom Street in the Mission District of San Francisco. Let's hear what locals have to say about Rainbow Grocery. Their bulk section is dope AF. I love their, their variety of cheese and home decor items uh, and this of unique items that you can't find anywhere else. Their cheese section is insane. 
I love Rainbow Grocery because it's the number one grocery store to shop at when you're having a potluck and need to fulfill everyone's dietary needs. They don't have meat. Rainbow Grocery Cooperative, an amazing San Francisco staple since 1975. Hey folks, this is Flat Black Plastic coming to you from Uni Radio. FM. Oh. 